You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to start in verse 16 and we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 3. It's a bit lengthy, but um, boy, so, so meaningful. Let's start in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. The teacher writes, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. And I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they're like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything's meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and all... And to the dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward. And if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work. Because that's his lot. Who can bring him to see what will happen after him. Again I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. And they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Let's pray together. Father, if I'm being honest, I have to admit that this text makes me very sad. And looking, it makes me look for hope somewhere. There has to be hope somewhere. And Father, I'm going to ask this morning that you would please do what we need, and that's to speak. This is your word. And it wasn't written to us, this text, but it was written for us. There are definitely implications here. There are things that you want for us to hear. So would you speak them clearly? Uh, And can they land, please, let them land on hearts that are soft. I mean, even now, soften our hearts to your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the picture on the screen is a guy by the name of George Allen Jr. This is a picture of him from about 1982. He's 25, six years old, somewhere in there in this picture. At the age of 26, George is uh, living outside of St. Louis in some government-funded housing with his mom, Lonzetta. And uh, George loves his family, but I mean, he's got some struggles. He struggles with mental illness. He's been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And uh, he, he's been in and out of some psychiatric facilities throughout his early life. And, uh, but like, like I said, he loves his family. And, and on Febu- in February of 1982, St. Louis is suffering from one of the biggest snowstorms it's ever experienced, like over 20 inches of snow in like a 24-hour period. And George is at home, and his sister's there, and he's trying to help shovel her car out of the snow so she can get gone with her boyfriend. And 
Because public transportation has been shut down because of the storm, George has nowhere to go after his sister leaves, so he stays home the rest of the day with his mom. It's kind of a typical thing, just living with mom, hanging out at the house. If you fast forward about a month and a half, George is out. It's a one March afternoon, and George is out and about walking. He often does that. He'd been drinking. He often does that. Uh, just doesn't have a lot of meaning, he feels like, in life. And he's walking a couple miles from home. And uh, while he's walking, a police car pulls up beside him, rolls down the window, and asks, Are you Marty Eaton? No, officer. I'm, I'm George Allen. Uh, George, you have any identification? No, officer. Uh, do you mind to come with us so we can head to the station? We just want to, we just want to verify your identity. George agrees to do it. George is taken to a police station because he had just been mistaken for another person who's wanted for questioning about a series of rapes in the area. And so George was picked up and since they didn't know his ID, you know, they take him to the station, but they quickly find out that he is not Marty Eaton, the man that they were looking for, for questioning. But they decided to go ahead and question him anyway, because there had been a murder as well that had been unsolved that happened about a month and a half before. In fact, it happened on the very day that George was digging his sister out of the snow. And so George agrees to the questioning, and an officer who starts questioning George tells him about this crime where there had been uh, an apartment that had been broken into, and a woman, a single woman, 31 years old, Mary Bell, had been raped. And brutally stabbed 19 times, stabbed to death. And throughout this questioning, the officer comes to realize that George is under the influence of alcohol and he comes, becomes aware of George's mental condition and he takes advantage of it. He starts leading George with questions and he even tells George at one point during the questioning that they have physical evidence that ties him to the crime. And it's a lie. George gets confused and eventually on tape, confesses to breaking in, raping, and stabbing a woman he doesn't even know. He's never met. Now, despite the fact that George is later going to recant his confession, George is put on trial. And that is used as the primary evidence against him. He's put on trial twice because the first one ends uh, in in like a, a hung jury. But he's immediately put on another trial and he's convicted by jury. He's convicted of breaking and entering. He's convicted of burglary. He's convicted of sexual assault and rape. And he's convicted of murder. And he is sentenced to 95 years in prison. George is taken to prison where his mom will regularly come and visit him. And she can only see him through a glass. The only uh, interaction she has with him is like that. And she does that for over 30 years. George never experiences another home-cooked meal during that time, never gets to touch his mother. Prison life is hard on him. At one point in time, there's a a guy who attacks George while he's in prison. He loses an eye. So prison life is very hard. But then we have another picture of George. And this was taken in November of 2012. This is George. See how he's smiling here? You know why he's smiling? Because this is the day that he walked out of a courtroom a free man. Because DNA evidence had caused his case to be opened back up. And it was found to be without a shadow of a doubt that he was not guilty of any of the crimes that he was convicted of. And George walks out over 30 years later a free man. And before you hear that and think, wow, justice. 
I want you to know this, that four years after this picture was taken, George dies an untimely death at the age of 60, spending over half his life behind bars for a crime he had never committed. His mom, still living, doesn't have the money to bury her only son. And I want to read to you some of the words that she read to a group of people that she was trying to raise money for, for burial. This is what she said. George was a gentle spirit. And although more than three decades of his life were so unfairly taken away from him, no one could take the dignity or joy that he brought to all our lives. I'm so proud of George because he stood strong in the face of such incredible adversity. On the day of his release, George walked through the doors of that courtroom in a blue plaid shirt and black slacks, and we all just beamed at him. Judge Green kept everything brief and quickly signed the order for his release, and seconds later, my George walked straight into my arms as the courtroom roared in applause. I had not touched him in years. We've all always spoken from behind a glass, and there are no words that could describe how that felt. The donated funds you're giving today will help me make sure that my son receives a proper burial that honors his life. Thank you in advance for your generosity. I'm really grateful for your support during this difficult time. How does that story make you feel? I'll tell you how it makes me feel. Very sad and extremely angry. I'm so angry that a man who is oppressed, he, he suffers from mental illness, he's wrongfully arrested, he's taken advantage of, he gets convicted of a crime he did not commit, and spends more than half his life in a prison for something he didn't do? I'm so angry for his mother who had her only son taken out of her home who had to visit him every week from behind a glass. I'm so angry for Mary Bell, the woman who was murdered because she didn't receive justice. The man who she'd never met was convicted of hurting her and the man who did it has never been found. I'm angry for her family. I'm just so sad, so angry. What is it about injustice like this that stirs such emotion in us, that causes us to feel so like something is so wrong? Well, the short answer is, is that you and I were made in the image of a just God. Did you know you were made in the image of God and God is a God of justice? And therefore there is something in us that God himself has placed there that longs for fairness and rightness and justice. It's why the movies where the bad guy gets what's coming to him are so satisfying. You know what I'm saying? It could be the warden in the Shawshank Redemption. Amen. Yes. Or Scar in The Lion King, that turd. You know what I'm talking about? When he goes down, those hyenas like, wow, you know, you're like, yes. (laughs) Or the Darth Vader picks up the emperor, you know, and it's like, ah, and throws him off in Star Wars. Come on. You know that makes you feel good. 
And the reason why is because there's this desire we have for right, for justice. However, our longings for, for justice are tainted. They're tainted by sin. A quick example, maybe just for illustration, maybe I'm going a little over the speed limit, you know, coming home from Jonesboro and you go over the top of that hill close to the party store down there or the state trooper you should learn by now is always sitting there and you see that guy and you yank your foot off the accelerator, throw it on the brake and you wonder in your head like, oh, please don't pull out behind me. And then when he does, what, what goes through your mind? Are you serious? You don't have better things to do? However, you know the days when you're driving real safe, two hands on the wheel, family's in there, you're smiling, going the speed limit, maybe three over, you know what I'm saying? Just real safe. Somebody drives past you ten over, you look over at your spouse and you say, boy, I hope there's a cop up there. You know what I'm saying? I long for justice for that dude, but not for me. And that's kind of humorous, but you know, our perversion of justice is really more serious than that. Like we fail to speak up. I I fail to speak up for the oppressed. We'll often vilify or ostracize the foreigner, the refugee. We'll look down upon the poor. There are other ways in which this perversion of justice exists in, in the hearts of people. Romans 13 verse 4 tells us that God has placed authority over us for justice. It says, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Like justice, that's your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And that's good. Those in authority are there to carry out and administer justice and right judgments. But the author here, the teacher, he looks around and what does he see? In the place of justice, there is wickedness. Verse 16, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, there was wickedness. And in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And we live, amen, in a world that is extremely unfair. Now, granted, like the, the nation you happen to live in happens to have one of the best court systems out there, like systems of justice. However, even it gets it wrong a lot. It's definitely not perfect. But the world in general you live in is not fair. Like it can seem so meaningless as to why one person may be in an automobile accident and lose both their kids and another doesn't. Why does one person get this diagnosis of cancer and another doesn't? Or like a former student of mine uh, whose husband literally just died in his sleep at the age of 34 the other day. How fair is that? And it seems to me and to the teacher here that we live in a world that is unjust. And he comes to this conclusion that life itself is hevel. It's that word we've learned. It's meaningless. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And if I'm looking to find meaning and justice in this life under the sun, I'm just not going to find it. In fact, he goes on, he comes to this conclusion in verse 18. He says, I said to myself, as for humans, like God tests them so that they can see they're just like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of animals. The same fate awaits them both. One of them dies, they both die. 
They all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals, and everything is meaningless. And when you first glance at this, it can be really hard to read. Because I read that and say, like, isn't this the Bible? You know what I'm saying? I thought humans were different than animals. So what in the, what in the world is he talking about? So I just briefly want to say, and I take this phrase and just remind us that we're viewing life under the sun. Okay? We're looking at life from like what can be seen and experienced and tested. And he's not so much thinking about the supernatural. This is the naturalistic view of the world. That it's just meaningless. That we're no different than animals. And this is a pervasive view in academia in this country. That what you see, what you can attest, what you can physically experience, that's all there is. And there's no reason to believe different. In fact, in 1977, the United States, NASA, we launched this uh, probe into the, the, you know, like the, it's the farthest we've ever sent anything. It was Voyager 1. Okay. So we send this, it's not a satellite, it's this probe that we sent out. It's the first vehicle to ever make it outside our solar system. Really incredible. And it travels at 38,000 miles an hour away from us. Okay. It's going out into the far reaches of wherever it can get to. And in, 1990, which is over 12 years after it was launched, Voyager 1 turns around one more time and takes one final picture of its home. And this, is, uh, this has become a world-famous photograph, okay? The most famous picture Voyager 1 ever took. And you see there this little red arrow pointing to this little light speck in the middle of that light beam there. That speck right there is Earth. And there was a philosopher who also was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, did not believe there was a reason to even believe in God. His name was Carl Sagan. He was very famous. He was on TV all the time. And Neil deGrasse Tyson has kind of taken his place in our day. But uh, Carl Sagan wrote this about the pale blue dot in this picture. He says, look at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everything that you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, Every human being who ever was lived out their lives. That aggregate of our, or the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, Every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint, and every sinner in the history of our species lived there on that moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And then he goes on to draw this conclusion. He says, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, listen to how dreary this is. The delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Let me tell you something. This view is being taught over and over and over and over that what you see is what you get. That's all there is to it. And it's been going on in, in, like I say, in academic circles for a long, long time. And William Shakespeare wrote about it too. Shakespeare, I knew it was hard to understand, so press in. But here's what he said. Life's but a walking shadow 
a poor player that struts and frets this hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. It's meaningless. This life is all there is. You're going to wake up one day like you have consciousness one day, and then one day you're going to die, and you're not going to have consciousness anymore. You're just like an animal. And so what conclusion can we draw? Well, verse 22, he starts with the word so. Like because this is true, because this is what we observe in life, that we're just like animals, like we just live our life, and then we're going to die. We, can't even, we won't even remember what we've done, he thinks, he says. So what's the conclusion? He says, so I saw that there's nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that's their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So because this is true, then you need to enjoy your life while you can because that's all you can do. In fact, he flushes this out a little bit more in chapter 8. And I know we'll get there and certainly don't want to steal any thunder. But in chapter 8, verse 14, he talks about the righteous who get what the wicked deserve And the wicked get what the righteous deserve. And he says, that too is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life. That's what you should do. Enjoy life. Because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be glad. You better enjoy it while you can. Because it's going to be over. Is that true? I'll tell you this. If that is true, or if you believe that to be true, because beliefs have consequences it's a really bleak view of the world it's a really bleak view of life to think that this is all i can experience and even if you do even if you are good enough or fortunate enough to like amass things and like get what the world tells you you need to get like the teacher was The teacher was able to like amass all kinds of stuff. He was able to have every experience that you ever wanted. And yet he comes to this conclusion that this is meaningless. Even if you have all that though, he says there's still depression because he lives in a world that's awful. Look what he says in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. He says again, I looked and I saw oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And this teacher is one who seems to have everything a human being could possibly want, and yet he's still unhappy because of all the injustice, all the oppression that he sees around him. And he comes to another conclusion. It's dreadful. He comes to the conclusion that we then are better off dead. He says, so the dead, in fact, the NIV is the only one that translates it this way, that the dead are happier than those who are still alive. But uh, maybe a a better translation, the ESV and others, King James, will will translate this way, that, that they're better off than those who are still living. Why? Well, because the dead aren't having to experience life on this miserable planet anymore. At least they're dead. And, and you, before you're tempted to say like, yeah, the dead are better off because they're with God. That's not what he's talking about. Because he goes on to say that even better than the dead are those who have never been born. And why are they better off than the dead? Because the dead had to live, what, 80 years on this hellish planet? That's what he's saying. They had to experience that. And like, yeah, they're out of it now. But better off than them are the ones who never had to experience any of it. That's what he's saying. 
Boy, is that true? That we're better off once we're dead? Because this life is all there is. And this life is filled with oppression and trouble. And because there's no one to comfort you if you are oppressed. And for those who are oppressed, there's no justice. We're really just better off. Maybe you found yourself even thinking thoughts like this. Maybe you know someone who has or who is. Right now, if you were to walk outside and look up, look up in the sky, I'm going to ask you, where are the stars? Like, uh, not the sun. I mean, I know the sun's a star. Like, don't give me a science lesson here, you know. But where are the rest of them? Did they run and hide when the sun came up this morning? Did someone come pluck them out of the sky? Like, no. They're still there. But you can't see them, right? Because the sun's so bright in our atmosphere and all this stuff, you know, it just hides them. But what's going to happen tonight? When that sun goes down, the sky grows dark. What are you going to be able to see there? Dude, the stars, a couple planets, you know, the moon, some things that you just can't see right now. Because, and you're able to behold the glory of these glorious things only when they're painted against a really dark backdrop. And I do believe that from this text, even though it is so dark, I believe that because it is, God is now inviting us to behold his glory. Painted against a really dark backdrop. Because the truth is that the Lord, Psalm 9 tells us, is a shelter for the oppressed. He is a refuge in times of trouble. We see that God has given every human being intrinsic value. You are not like an animal. And there is going to be a day of justice. God is just. There will be equity for all. In fact, we could go back to verse 17, read that together. He said, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Listen, this is true. A time is coming when all that is wrong will be made right. It will happen. And the justice of God is glorious. It is beautiful. It draws us to him. Psalm 9 verse 16 says, The Lord is known by his acts of justice. Like we know God to be this way. In Psalm 36, we see that your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. And your justice is like the tides of the ocean. The justice of God calls us to praise him, to adore him, to love him, to be drawn to him. It is beautiful, but it is also terrible. It is terrifying. The justice of God is a lot like a bug zapper. Yeah, amen. A couple of my student DNA over there. We were talking about this Wednesday night. It's like a bug zapper. Remember from a bug's life, that scene where you see these two, I don't know if they're mosquitoes or what they are. They're buzzing around and there's this uh, bug zapper. 
There. I think we have a picture of it, right? Do we have a picture of that? Please, it'll help us out. So there it is. Beautiful. See how beautiful that light is? And that bug on the right, see how his eyes are fixed on the light? He's being drawn. To, you can see him. He's slowly flying to it. And the bug on the left is t- warning him like, no, don't do it. Don't go to the light. He says, he, and then the bug on the right says, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. You know, he goes to it and then he hits it and it zaps him. Oh, and he falls down. The justice of God is kind of like that. And then it draws us to him, but it also terrifies us. Why? Because Romans chapter three tells us that we all are wicked. We all are sinners. We all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. And that is terrifying when someone who is wicked stands in the presence of a just and holy God. Because Proverbs 17 tells us that the person who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. You mean the person who justifies the sinner is an abomination? I want to tell you this. God is good, which means that God is just, and therefore God cannot simply sweep sin and injustice under the rug. Not just that he won't do it, but his character, who he is, will not allow it. And to illustrate that, let's just imagine for a second that the actual killer of Miss Mary Bell that we heard about at the beginning was found. Because we know it wasn't George Allen, never has been, this guy never has been found. But let's say that he is found and that forensic evidence nails him. He even, it's so incontrovertible that he, that he confesses to the crime. And he stands there uh, with a jury who condemns him and says, yes, you're guilty. He's convicted of murder and rape and burglary and, and breaking and entering. And then this guy comes to the judge for sentencing. Let's just imagine he stands there in front of the judge and he admits his guilt. And he says, but I'm really sorry. I have never done it since. I'll never do that again. And I feel really bad for what I did. Let's now imagine that judge takes this position and says, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind judge. I'm a forgiving and loving judge. So I'm going to let you go. What would be the response from the community? What would be the response from the family of George Allen? What would be the response from the family of Mary Bell? Outrage. Yes. What would be your response? I hope it would be outrage because an injustice was done. It's his job to administer justice. And if he does not do so, he is a bad judge. He's going to be run out. He's going to lose his job, hopefully lose his license. Well, God is not a bad judge. And the pro- that's, that's awesome. But that's also terrible because now what are we going to do? Where are you going to hide? What, what, what story are you going to come up with when you stand before God on your own and have to give an account of your life? What are you going to say? You're going to say like, oh, I mean, like everybody does it. Hey, we're all sinners. Hey, we all make mistakes. It's just a mistake. How are you going to account for the rebellion of your life against a holy God? The truth of the scriptures is there's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can hide. And so you better enjoy this life while you can because you're going to stand before God and give an account. But 
God isn't just like that. We, we read in Psalm 103 that he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. And that brings up a real big question. Okay, so God doesn't give us what we deserve. How can he do that and still be good? The answer is Jesus. It's the gospel. God, out of his great love with which he loved us, sent his own son, sent his own son, Jesus, to live and do what you and I could not do and indeed we would not do. Didn't want to do it, couldn't do it if we did want to, and that's to perfectly obey the law of God. We couldn't do it. We wouldn't do it. Jesus did it. And then Jesus, in your place and in my place, takes the place of the sinner and is treated by God as Jesus hangs on a cross, is treated by God as if he were the sinner. Colossians tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. In other words, you, your sin is not dealt with as like God's just like, no, dude, I'm cool with it. I'm just going to like pretend it didn't happen. No, God doesn't pretend it didn't happen. In fact, God takes all of your sin and the guilt and weight of it and places it on his son. And Isaiah tells us it pleased God to crush him for your sake. So Jesus stands in our place and dies so that the justice of God can be satisfied. Oh, I love the line of that song. The wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. So here in the death of Christ, I stand. When I stand before God, it's not going to be like, God, I was a member of the crossing. God, I got baptized. God, look at the great family I raised. God, look at all the money I gave. God, look at the things that I did. I served at mission outreach and I worked with, I fostered kids and I did all this and that. You know, the only hope I have is that God have mercy on me for I am in Christ. I'm clinging to your son and to his work on my behalf. It's the only hope I have. This love that God has for Jesus, that the Father has for his son, is now extended to all those who are in Christ. Everyone who is in Christ is now seen by the Father through the righteousness of his son. But only those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Have you given your life like Jared t- talked earlier about repent, or no, Adam I talked earlier about repentance. We heard about that. This idea of like I'm going to turn away and like give up this way of life, and I'm going to embrace real life in Christ. I'm going to cling to Him. If boy, if that's you, there is no fear of the judgment of God. In fact, we can behold His glory and just like praise Him for it, and know that Christ took the judgment and justice of God on our behalf, and. When we are in Christ, all our sins are washed away. They're no longer held against you. Did you know that that is not the conclusion of the good news of what Jesus did? Jesus, it's glorious, 
died that you might be forgiven of your sins and that you might stand before God with all assurance and confidence as a person right before him. That's cool. But he, that's not cool. That's a terrible word. That's awesome. That is incredible. But more than that, he has saved you not just like for heaven someday, but he saved you unto himself. He saved you to make you his child and to bring you into a relationship with himself, with the God of the universe. You're a speck on that little dot. And God sent his son Jesus so that you might be treated as a son or a daughter. In this life, not just in the afterlife. Jerry was talking to me this week. He'd been counseling with, a, with someone saying that like heaven is reserved for those who desire God. Not just those who want to escape hell. Heaven's not reserved for those. Heaven's reserved for those who want God. And I'm telling you, if you don't want God today, you're not going to enjoy heaven forever. Because that's what makes heaven heaven. It's God. And so God saves you to satisfy your soul, not just forgive your sins. And one of the ways that he satisfies your soul is by inviting you in to join him in his work of expanding his kingdom on this earth. Isaiah chapter 58, we're going to close in this, with this a bit here. Isaiah is speaking, prophesying to a, a nation that is strayed far from God. And, and, and yet they're still doing a lot of religious things and they're sacrificing and fasting. But in chapter 58, verse 6, he says, is not, speaking, God speaking here, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? This is the kind of fasting God wants. To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Like, isn't that what I want? He says, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Very interesting, by the way. This idea of turning away from your own flesh and blood, that, that sentence there, that statement is summing up everything that he had just said. It's summing up all those groups that he had just talked about. Your own flesh and blood are the ones who are suffering injustice. They're the oppressed. They're the hungry. They're the poor wanderer. They're the naked. Back up. The poor wanderer is our flesh and blood. When we think of our flesh and blood, what do we think of? Like that's our family, right? And our family tends to like look like us and, you know, they talk like us. They enjoy the things we do. Like we're blood. We're blood. Family. But here he's lumping together people who are your own flesh and blood who he calls the poor wanderer. You know who the poor wanderer is? It's a foreigner who's in your land. It's a sojourner. It's a refugee. And here, like God is inviting us in to enjoy more of himself by administering justice, doing good to the oppressed poor wanderer. How do we do that? Well, we plunge our life. We plunge our resources into the fabric of the society that we've been put in. Okay? That's what we do. So uh, one person who does this and kind of embodies this is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember Jimmy Stewart's uh, character in a wonder, It's a Wonderful Life? By the way, I think we start our Christmas movies in about two weeks. I hope it's soon. I love Christmas. All right. It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart plays, uh, uh, come on, give me his name. Help me out. 
Help me, Rhonda. No, Clarence is the angel. George. Thank you. Thank you, George. So George, George is, is like given, is born into Bedford Falls. He lives in Bedford Falls and he has like this life that he lives and he just pours himself out over and over and over for his brother and eventually for his community. And like, it is a happy place to be. You know, it's like Mayberry. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just like Bedford Falls. It's a really great, quaint community. The community is thriving. There's much joy and stuff there. But George gets down on his life and Clarence the angel comes along and shows George what life would have been like if he hadn't been there stewarding all these resources for the good of the community. And what happens? Well, the old rich guy who runs the bank, Mr. Potter, uh, is in charge of everything. Well, he's the opposite of what George is. He's not pouring himself out for the good of the community. He is looking to get everything for himself. He sees all his wealth as to be like the purpose of everything that I have is to be meant for me. And what happens? What does what the, the community look like that George is able to see? It's fractured. It's broken. And that's exactly what happens when we live our lives that way. The community at large suffers. So what are some practical ways that we can join with God in experiencing all the life that he has for us? Let me just give you some practical ones. The most practical and easy, maybe not easy, sharing the gospel. You can share your faith. Let me tell you what, if you're following Jesus, there is no better thing you could do for another human being than to invite them into the joy you're experiencing. Share the gospel. That wasn't in my original notes, but boy, when we were talking before the sermon earlier today, that's like, man, that, that is definitely something we could all do to like run towards the brokenness of our city. Share the gospel. Now, I'm going to give you three things in succession that help us go a little deeper each time. The first one's the easiest, and it gets a little harder and a little harder, okay? But just, just follow along. The first one we can do is we can give our treasure. That's one way we can join God in the work of expanding his kingdom. And we can experience more joy okay, and meaning in this life. How can you do that? You could donate some clothes to organizations like Together We Foster. It's an organization here in town that provides clothes for kids in foster care. You could give money to Mission Outreach to help buy beds uh, that they sorely need at their facility over there. You could join the schools in a food drive to provide food for families in need. Did you know that the school helps to do that kind of thing? So you can donate your treasure. You can give money. You literally could just give to the church as we help do those things as well. Okay? And I don't want to minimize that. Let me tell you something. The gospel is free, but somebody's got to put in the plumbing. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the, we, we, there are resources needed. Okay? And that's one way that we can join God in doing it. But let's get a little bit deeper than that. And we can give of our time. So we could volunteer at the mission. We could visit a recovery center like Freedom House or John 316, Agape House. There's so many opportunities to visit, make a difference, serve some uh, food, lead a Bible study. There's lots of things you could do. You could spend time with residents in a nursing home. Well, talk about the oppressed. Talk about those who are on the margins, many of them without families uh, to care for them. And then thirdly, let's go a little deeper. We can give of ourselves. Maybe we could befriend a refugee and invite them into our lives. Invite their family to eat around our table. Dude, that's, that's costly. 
That's awesome. Maybe you could foster a child. Maybe you could mentor a student. Get your get another person's life and yours like on the same track. You know what I'm saying? And each of these, as we do it, like, yeah, we get a little bit deeper. And it's true that it does get a little bit harder. But Jerry was sharing earlier how that, like, the further we go, the deeper we go, the more, I don't know, anchored we are in God and, like, the more of his peace that we experience. Even when there's, like, storms swirling overhead. I just, I love that. Like, the deeper we go with him, the more rooted we are in him, the more of him we experience, the more life and meaning that we experience on this side of eternity. And then finally, I would just say, we got to do this together, together. I truly do believe our church believes our pastors believe that missional communities provide the best way that we know of to link arms together as disciples of Jesus to carry out the mission of God. They're not perfect. They're really hard. They're really messy. They don't get this all right. There are seasons there, seasons that are really low, and some seasons like, boom, we're knocking it out of the park. That's true. But we need one another as we're doing this stuff. God invites us in to enjoy him now, not just when we die. And you will not enjoy him more than when you join him in his work. You just won't. So... Yeah. What is he calling us to do? Like what what is it practically that you could do to move towards those who are on the margin? To give hope to those who feel no hope to provide what those there's just so many so many needs. But then but not only that, let me ask this. Are you are you in Christ? I just feel so burdened about this that like it's totally possible to sit week after week and listen to teachings and uh, to even be an MC and all this and like miss God. I mean, you gave such a good example, raised in a good home. I mean, I'm assuming your parents weren't uh, you know, like terrible, bad parents. You know, your parents are great. You know, they're teaching you the gospel and all this. And he gets to college and thinks he's, a, I'm talking about Tyler up here. He shared with us a while ago. Gets to college and, I mean, thinks he's a Christian. And then, thank God, through the conviction of his spirit, I comes to realize, like, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I'm not, I don't know God. God doesn't just want you to go to heaven when you die. I want you to know him. Do you know him today? And if-